Hey there, OrthoBullets podcast listeners. Today's show is the inaugural episode of a new podcast series called Coin Flips and Controversies, where experts explore gray zone clinical decisions through case-based discussions. To review and vote on the featured case in advance and watch the full video version of this episode, you can find the links in our show notes. Without further ado, let's begin this first episode of Coin Flips and Controversies. Welcome to Coin Flips and Controversies, an OrthoBullet's original series dedicated to exploring gray zone decisions in orthopedic surgery. This episode of Coin Flips and Controversies is sponsored by Shoulder360, the comprehensive shoulder course taking place this April 28th through 30th, 2022 at the Lowe's Miami Beach Hotel. At this time, we will hand it over to the webinar faculty. We hope you enjoy the episode. Well, welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us for Coin Flips and Controversies, uh, sponsored by Shoulder360 via OrthoBullets. Uh, my name is Joe Abood. I am a shoulder surgeon at the Rothman Orthopedic Institute in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We are doing this through OrthoBullets, and I have an excellent uh, faculty with me here. First of all, uh, I'd like to let you all know that Rafi Merzion, Paul Sethi, and I are chairing a course in South Beach, Miami, April 28th through April 30th of this year at the Lowe's Hotel. We are co-chairs, and we are joined by one of our superstar faculties, Joaquin Sanchez-Satello, for this Coin Flips and Controversies tonight. We'll be going through a case and then going through some controversial questions about the case, going through treatment options trying to see where we all fall in as far as what we would have done for this patient. And at the end, I will reveal to you what I did and see how that pairs up with what you were thinking along the way. One thing about Shoulder 360 is the inaugural course. We have an absolutely jam-packed program for you. We have national, international faculty. We have over 20 fellowships represented for shoulder surgeons. And we believe that it will be a fast-paced, fun educational event that you won't want to miss and you'll be wanting to come back year after year. So I'll let each uh, speaker introduce themselves as well here, and then we'll get rolling. I'm Rafi Mirzayan from Los Angeles. I'm a shoulder and elbow surgeon uh, at Kaiser Permanente. Good to be here. Paul? I'm Paul Sethi. I am a sports medicine and shoulder surgeon in Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, part of ONS and Spire Orthopedics. And Joaquin? My name is Joaquin Sanchez. I am a shoulder and elbow surgeon at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. I am not part of the uh, organization of the 360 course, but I cannot wait to go to uh, South Beach, Miami on April. It's going to be so much fun. Thank you for having me. I think you're going to take to it like a fish to water, Joaquin. I'm pretty sure. I know. <laughs> so tonight, you know, we're going to be presenting a, what I would consider a fairly non-controversial case, just kidding, uh, of how to manage uh, a patient with something we see all the time a massive rotator cuff tear in a patient who's sort of on the cusp as far as young and old for today's physiologic and chronologic age. This patient is, is my patient. It's a gentleman who's in his uh, late 60s. He's had a typical history of years ago, a previous rotator cuff repair in 2001. It was done arthroscopically at that time. And he's been having progressive right shoulder pain. He's a retired carpenter, but still stays very active. He's uh, in fairly good health. 
He's been having increasing pain with his shoulder, as well as uh, some weakness and difficulty with overhead activities. He's tried a course of conservative management consisting of anti-inflammatories and physical therapy and did not improve and comes in to see me. Again, he's fairly healthy, hypertension and surgery as noted above. He uh, has some mild tenderness below the acromion and anterior to the bicipital groove. His uh, range of motion, he has active abduction to 80 uh, and passively to about 120. He has forward elevation actively to about 110. Passively can get him to about 160. External rotation at his side to 30 degrees actively and passively can get him about 50. Internal rotation to L5. He has uh, a Job's test that's positive for pain, and he has negative abdominal compression test. He's otherwise neurovascularly intact. So as is typical in my office, we get a shoulder series of x-rays. What we saw on the AP view of this gentleman, we saw no evidence of any arthritic changes of significance. He had some minor proximal humeral migration, meaning that the alignment between the inferior aspect of the humeral head and the inferior glenoid was slightly off with the humeral head migrated approximately in the range of three millimeters or so. There was uh, clearly no severe evidence of any abutment of the greater tuberosity with the acromion. And for all intents and purposes, otherwise, this was a fairly normal AP radiograph. When we looked at his axillary radiograph, the humeral head appeared well-centered in the glenoid fossa. Again, no significant osteophytes off of the humeral head or the glenoid to suggest a progressive arthritic process taking place. And the force couples appear to be working between the subscap and the teres minor as the head was centered along the central axis of the glenoid vault. We, as is usual in situations like this, will obtain preoperative MRI images. And we looked at several slices of that MRI. One of the images we looked at was a coronal T2 image, which showed that the uh, humeral head, again, was slightly proximally migrated. The tear was retracted with the edge of the tendon at the glenoid margin, which is consistent with a large to massive tear type. If we uh, looked at the T1 images there, you could see that there was significant atrophy in the area of the supraspinatus. As is commonly described, we call that Goutelier stage four atrophy, which is the most severe muscle atrophy we see in, in the rotator cuff. We looked at the remaining coronal cuts and then turned our attention to the axial cuts, which are important because we want to be able to assess the integrity of the subscapularis in this particular patient, as was uh, suspected based on our plane films. The subscapularis and teres minor were intact. The muscle bellies did not show significant atrophy, and the humeral head did not show any significant wear of the articular cartilage with appropriate setting of the humeral head on the glenoid vault. We look at this in both T2 and, and T1 images, and then turn our attention to sagittal cut MRI images. This allows us to view the muscle bellies medial to the glenoid face, 
to give us a sense again of the stages of atrophy of the various muscles. In this patient, what we saw was the supraspinatus, infraspinatus had severe stage four cutalier atrophy of the muscle, which generally means really everything's been replaced by fat. The teres minor and the subscapularis appeared to show good preservation of the muscle bellies, which is consistent with this gentleman's functional capacity where he had preservation of elevation, but uh, weakness and pain. We also will oftentimes look at these images in a dynamic fashion, meaning scroll through the entire set of images as we've just discussed and bring that into full context for our ultimate diagnostic thoughts based on the MRI. So again, this is a typical MRI description that I would see in a patient who's an appropriate candidate for some sort of intervention beyond just a full repair type situation. All right. So in these cases that uh, we've uh, put out on OrthoBullets, it's really a fantastic tool because we're able to present these cases and then survey surgeons from around the world to get their input on various aspects of workup, diagnostic imaging, treatment options, post-treatment therapeutic options, et cetera. So we're able to garner the, the input of thousands of people. And so, you know, for this case, I think this is a, a little appetizer for you, but just to kind of get the panel's thoughts on you know, how you approach as far as imaging a patient like this. Is what I did adequate? Would you have bothered with plain x-ray? Would you have gone just to an MRI? You know, as you see, I went, I used x-ray and MRI, which is fairly standard for me in a patient like this. I'd like to get, uh, maybe start off with Paul's perspective on how he approaches this as far as imaging. So Joe, I'm actually really surprised that you did get it right on the imaging and the and the studies required. Thank you. Uh, I, uh, I think x-rays are critical and, and we'll, I'll get into that in a minute. And then for me, I'm going to use an MRI. I don't really see a role for MRI arthrogram in the setting of, of rotator cuff disease, whether it's primary or revision tears. I, I don't know. I don't need to find a pinhole leak. If I'm looking that hard, it doesn't clinically make a difference. I know our European colleagues will use CT scan in lieu of MRI scan. And I think with the right soft tissue windows, you can make a lot of similar inferences between MRI and CT, and it may be a more available, less expensive technology in Europe. So staying with the x-rays, and I'd like to sort of open it up to all of us. I think the x-rays are unbelievably important. Of course, you want to eliminate the, the possibility of arthritis and large bony cysts, infarcts, AVN, but something I didn't really appreciate when I was a resident or think about it was the Hamada classification. And I believe that the Hamada classification does a lot more for me now in the viability of a soft tissue operation to restore rotator cuff function or pain. And in, in a Hamada one or two, where the head is really well centered, I feel very comfortable in attempting additional soft tissue operations. When it gets to a Hamada three, when it starts to migrate superiorly, it goes from a green light to a yellow light. So not a no, but a have caution. And beyond that, a four and a five, I think that my soft tissue options really fade away. I'll throw it to, to Joaquin or Rafi to just stay on the x-ray for a minute. Joaquin? I would agree with you completely, Paul. I will get x-rays and an MRI on this patient. And I love your comment about the Hamad classification because that's also really helpful for me. The one thing I would mention is that I do get patients sometimes referred where the MRI sequences are not what I need. Meaning that 
if they come with sometimes a proton density sequence that is incomplete, um, I really want to have a true T1 like Dr. Abu just showed because fat infiltration is so important for me deciding what to do. I think there is a difference between a cut you can repair, a cut you can repair and will heal, and a cut that you can repair will heal and be functional. So you may be able to repair calf with a great fatty filtration, but it may take you nowhere. So I think that the times that I repeat the MRI is when the MRI that comes to me is maybe insufficient, but with the images that Joe showed, I would be perfectly fine with X-rays and an MRI. How about you, Rafi? I agree with you guys as well. I think uh, getting an X-ray is important, especially for the Hamada classification. And I published a paper on this where we compared X-ray and MRI in the same shoulder with a massive cuff tear and there was a big difference in the acromion humeral distance between MRI and an X-ray in Hamada 1s and 2s. And that's because when you get an X-ray, you're standing up. When you get an MRI, you're laying down. So you, you, the effect of gravity is eliminated. So whenever I get a, an MRI report and there's a Hamada grade uh, on it, it's, it's in just inaccurate. So I think it's important to have both. And I think we use diagnostic imaging to not only make a diagnosis, but also to help us plan. So like you said, if there's higher Goutalier classifications, a repair is probably not going to, you, you may be able to repair it, but it's probably not going to heal or it's not going to be functional. So I'm going to, it's going to steer me away from wanting to do a repair of the rotator cuff and look at alternative options. Hey, Joe, can I ask you a question? Sure. What's your thought about ultrasound? You know, I struggle with that because what I don't like about ultrasound is that I'm not an expert, so I cannot see what's going on. So if I get only an ultrasound and x-rays, I still will get an MRI. How about you? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. Uh, about 12, 13 years ago, I actually went to a course, learned how to do ultrasound myself, and was, was doing some of it in the office, full disclosure, partly to, to be able to image better, partly because there is financial benefit to doing it. And as I was doing it, you can visualize a fair amount, obviously, at the tendon bone interface, at the muscular tendinous junction. It's hard, unless you're, I think, an expert ultrasonographer, to get fatty infiltration. The other thing is really was very difficult for me to, to get those patients that had mild OA that didn't show up on x-ray, but they were flaking off their cartilage. And so for me, typically, if I'm going to operate on somebody, unless there's a contraindication for an MRI, I still want to see the MRI because there's so much other information I glean from it rather than just going by an ultrasonographer's report. In keeping things moving, I just want to show the faculty what our peers said as far as your thoughts. And, and so even though not one thing got a super majority, if you look at between MRI and X-ray, that's easily 76%. So, you know, you can see most people would agree that either one or both is indicated or necessary. So it's interesting that very few people wanted a CT scan. So maybe we, we saw more American surgeons in this survey than, than Europeans. So I'm going to move on to another, I think. Joe, uh, if I can make one more comment. Um, yeah. In patients who have pacemakers or have bullet fragments or metal fragments, a CT arthrogram is, has been helpful. That's been my go-to backup instead of an MRI if I can't get an MRI. Just wanted to mention that. Do you find a CT arthrogram much more helpful than just a plain CT for you? To make the diagnosis uh, for cuff, yes, I do. That's all I've ever ordered. So I've never compared it without. So that's what I typically order. Okay. Sometimes I'll just look at the, the how much fatty infiltration or atrophy they have, and then they'll be able to kind of say, okay, they have, looks pretty sure like they have a, a super tear. I, I, I hate arthrograms, partly because I've had arthrograms on my shoulder, and I can tell you they're extremely painful. 
And early on in my practice, I'd have patients complaining about the fact that I sent them for a very painful test that was invasive, and even some to the point where they felt like they may have had an infection introduced to their shoulder because of radiologists and their technique. So I don't use them for anything. So I know that's heresy in some shoulder circles, probably Paul's twitching right now, but that's okay, Paul. Let your facial paralysis relax. I wonder, Joe, how long you're supposed to wait. Let's just say you're doing an orthogram. You have to wait a fixed period of time to operate on that patient. You know, let's just say you did an orthogram and you wanted to do an arthroplasty for whatever particular reason. You, you see glenoid loosening and Joaquin wants to do a, a massive revision. You know, look, we worry about injection period preceding any kind of arthroplasty. So, you know, arthrograms to me are, are really limited for labral pathology in a delayed sequence when I'm revision labral pathology, perhaps. Okay, we're going to move to the uh, next controversial question presented about this case. And this goes to what you were talking about, Paul, as far as would you use a classification system to guide your management of this patient? And, you know, it's very interesting. I was asked to give a lecture recently about how classifications help guide me in my decision making. And I I've never really been good at classifications. And, and I, again, if I'm doing a repair, people always ask, is this a, a U, a Crescent, a Reverse L, an L, a W, a Z? I'm like, it's torn. I'm going to put it back <laughs> the way I think, I think God intended to be put back. But and so I look at these classifications and I think they're, they're obviously very important. And, and for me, the Goutelier is probably, for something like this, the most important one. Hamada is, is probably number two. Uh, if we're getting into true cuff arthropathy, then Seabauer uh, is probably for me uh, the most, most important. But, you know, again, I think I put it all into context of the clinical vignette, the imaging, the patient, the sense I'm getting from that patient. So I don't necessarily know if there's one go-to for me. How about, how about Rafi? What do you think? I think Gutalia and Hamada are probably my two go-tos in, in massive cuff tears because if it's a Hamada 3, if they're high-grade Gutalia, the chance of the rotator cuff repair healing is very low. So that's also going to sway me away from a repair. So I would look towards an SCR or a balloon in your case. I, I have no experience with it, but I would look at alternative options as opposed to just a cuff repair. So those are the two I use the most. Joaquin. Yeah, for me, it would be the same. It would be the Gutalia classification, which for MRI is actually the Fuchs-Gerber classification, similar the Hamada. And also, I think it's important to know how many tendons are torn as well. And I listened to your lecture, uh, Joe, and I loved it. I think it was so insightful because I agree with you that we all struggle remembering the classification details. But what I like about them is that they make you think about the factors that may influence your treatment. So you may not remember what Hamada 2 or 3 is, but if you think that you have that in, your, in the back of your mind, you're at least thinking about the presence or absence of glenohumeral joint OA or the Gutalia. You're at least thinking about uh, fat infiltration. So I would agree with you that remembering every single detail is not important, but this makes people think what are the factors that may influence calf healing, yes or no. So for me, it would be Gutalia, Hamada, and either Coffee or Gerber, those three. I almost want to use a, a meta version of these where Gutelier is going to play a role because a Gutelier, a low Gutelier with a high Hamada or vice versa. And I think the number of tendons matter. There's an interesting study that just came out of, uh, out of Asia. And it's the rotator cuff index. And what they're trying to do is use factors to predict the healing of rotator cuff. So, and, and the tertiary comment after that as well, if you have a cuff that you want to operate on, but it's going to have a, a low score, a score, you know, above a seven, low meaning low chance of healing, 
then maybe you're going to think of alternate ways to augment that. So I, I like all of these. I think it's very important for the surgeon to be cognizant of the risk factors for failure and pull out the strengths of each of these so that you can individualize care. And maybe some surgeons are going to be mad because they want to checklist manifesto and want us to be algorithm-based, but I don't know that with certain surgical solutions can be that way all the time. Well said. Well said. Let's look, uh, as they say, let's go to the videotape here and see what our colleagues from around the world thought. And so 40% said a classification system would not help me. So 40% are going by gestalt. I, lo- I call it the Larry David, you know, hmm, versus pretty, pretty, pretty good, right? So <laughs> then you got the Goutelier, 21%. Only 9% for Hamada. Not much love for Hamada or Cofield or Gerber. I mean, I'm sorry about Cofield or Joaquin. I mean, Mayo Icon. And then Gerber, zero. So I don't know. Maybe this webinar is going to help educate some of these people that they they do need to use a combination of some of these thoughts, at least to to analyze things in their head. So, Joe, I I think you make an important point because each one of us, I don't want that messaging to be wrong. Each one of us said that we don't rely solely on a on a system, but nonetheless, each one of us knows them and references them and uses them as an important part of our decision algorithm. So that I think if you're not thinking about Hamada or you're not thinking about Goutelier or you're not thinking about the size of the tear, you perhaps aren't being as analytic as perhaps I would like to be. I agree a hundred percent. That's why I mentioned that maybe you don't have to remember the details of what's a two or a three, but think about what these classifications meant and what they can, you know, convey in terms of the chance of success of your treatment. Yep. Excellent. So I think we're going to move into a little more controversial area here. And so question four, if you choose or chose operative treatment, what would you recommend? And so for the patient presented, I'd like to ask the panel, we'll start uh, with Joaquin on this one. So he can put a stamp on what he would do. This patient is in your office. They flew out to Rochester in the middle of February to get your opinion. What's your treatment of choice here? Uh, I don't like this, Joe, because you're picking me for the most difficult question. That's just not. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, this is truly decision-making shared with the patient because every one of these options has a role, in my opinion, in irreparable cafters. So you can justify any of this for different patient populations. So what I always think about in my <sighs> practice is, do I really have to address the glenohumeral joint? That's my number one question. So like Paul said, Hamada 3-4, I know for sure that what hurts is the cartilage. Then that's a reverse. Everyone else, which is a lot of patients, I think it depends on a combination of what they really need, how much they want to invest in their recovery, and what are the complications that can happen. So what do I mean by that? For me, at least, a tendon transfer, which for me today is a lower issue transfer, is only for the patient that lacks active external rotation. Your patient, if I remember, had 30 of active and 50 of passive. Yes. For me, that is not an indication for a lower type issue transfer. I know that Hassan will disagree, but that's not for me. For the SCR, I don't have a lot of experience with it, to be honest, because I don't more tendon transfers. But I think it's mostly for the patient where you have pretty reparable infraspinatus. And I worry that in the case that you showed, the infra is far gone. So I would be thinking about for this patient that is looking for pain relief and has 120 of elevation and some external rotation to do something that is more minimalistic 
just because the complication rate is less and the recovery is faster. So I was thinking about debridement or a partial repair or a balloon as a first option. If that doesn't work, we can move on to things that are going to take you six to eight months to recover completely. And then a reverse for me is for glenohumeral OA. So if I have to vote on something, for me today, it would be either a deprivement procedure or a balloon, especially in a patient that has failed carrier surgery, good active elevation, good active standard rotation, and the cartilage looks okay to me. Paul, what do you think? So look, you, you articulated it really well. And I, th this talk, we, we've all been on panels to have this talk. So I actually went through some data recently and looked at outcomes of debridement, SCR, partial repair, and reverse shoulder arthroplasty in the younger group, in the 60-year-old in the group, right? And this one's a little older. And as it turns out, the subjective shoulder values are all around 78 to 82 or 83% for all of these procedures. So the patient's perception of what they're getting is going to be very similar. And I think the hard part of the art of medicine for me is to sort of read that patient and understand that patient and see what they're buying into and what they want. So Joaquin, you alluded to it, like, what do they want to go through? This guy's had rotator cuff surgery 20 years ago. If he says I'm one and done, I just, I can't take this anymore. Then I'm going to sort of rely another way. If I start to say, it's kind of like the bicep tenodesis and I'm sorry to bring up the biceps Roth. I know it's always, but I'll tell a person I'm going to cut your biceps. And if their jaw drops and then I quickly say, but then I'm going to reattach it. And if their jaw doesn't drop then I'm like, and that's all I'll do. Right. So I kind of want to, figure out what they need. Jo Joaquin, he doesn't need strength. You're right. I think a lower trapezius is a great right. operation, but he doesn't need strength. I am too scared to do debridements, so I don't do a whole lot of that in my practice. I think that a partial repair, he's already had a repair, so I don't know. I mean, it's 20 years. Oh, Paul, wait, wait, wait. You said you're scared to do debridements? Do you want to rephrase that? Maybe it, <laughs> you're apprehensive about the benefit of a debridement? I mean, you know. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. I was trying to keep it simple because, you know, the language is an issue sometimes for you. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> uh, but, but look, patients to me are, are very stuck sometimes on, I have a tear, you must fix it. My bone is broke, it must be fixed. So when I tell them I'm going to go and make their tear, I'm going <sighs> to trim it up. They're like, you're going to make it a little bigger. I'm like, well, you see what, I'm, what, what I was trying to say. So it doesn't, it, it exists, but... I'm going to sort of mix that in with the biceps only. And then I think our, our options, whether I do a, and it's not on your list, a biceps anterior cable reconstruction, right? Whether I do a, a, a spacer, those are going to be so much, or a balloon, those are going to be so much small relative addition work to debridement alone. I think I'm going to do debridement plus. Rafi. I think you guys have brought up a lot of good points. I, I think patient expectation and patient demand is key. I mean, is this guy wanting to go back to his regular job or is he retired? Is he done? He's retired. Just, he's retired. So th those are the questions you got to ask him. Is he wanting a lot of active external rotation? In my opinion, I, I think he has enough. I don't think a tendon transfer is going to be necessary. I think a cuff debridement is going to give you limited pain relief, if at all, and the pain's going to come back. He's already failed a cuff repair. So a revision rotator cuff repair this far out is probably not going to work. I mean, you could probably reattach the tendon, but it's not going to heal. So uh, in my practice, I would definitely do a superior capsule reconstruction for this patient. Um, I agree with Joaquin. If there's no arthritis, if there's no glenohumeral joint pathology, 
And if he's not a Hamada three, I'm not going to do a reverse for him. So I would do a superior capsule reconstruction. In my experience, the patients recover way faster than a rotator cuff repair. They come in at two, three months and they're like showing off. They're raising their arm. They're telling me how happy they are. I have to slow them down a little bit, but they are way happier than an actual primary rotator cuff repair. And those guys take over six months to get pain relief. So um, the only thing I tell them with an SCR is you're not going to have strength with overhead elevation. You're not going to be able to pick up something heavy and put it overhead, but you can actively elevate your arm all the way to 180. You'll be able to sleep through the night and I'm going to take your pain away. And that's, I achieved that goal. Joe, I I have two questions. Uh, One, when did his rotator cuff tear recur? Did it heal? Why didn't it heal? I mean, it's a little sort of, we don't know, but after all those questions, I'm going to tell you if there's really a God. So, <laughs> so uh, all of them are possible, right? I mean, he may have never healed from 2001, but benefited from the fact that he had his rotator cuff manipulated, debrided, somewhat anchored, some soft tissue in her position. It may have torn clearly several years ago because the atrophy that he has did not happen over six to 12 months. And so this has been a slow progressive process. There was no acute seminal event that I recall him telling me. Now, it's interesting that if we had a panel of 20 doctors, I would dare say 50% of them would have said RSA because I think the consumer wants, as you alluded to, Paul, one and done. And so all the things we talked about are one and some, right? Because there's going to be a one and there's probably going to be in seven years, another one. Right. And so I always have a hard time. And I I had the same conversation today with the patient. What's your personality? Do you want to go slow, progressive steps or do you want your biggest bang for your buck with some increased risk profile? Right. Because even though the cartilage looks good, these operations all do not restore function as, as far as elevation and abduction, I think, as well as an RSA. Now, RSA, you lose internal rotation, granted, and its mechanics aren't as natural. So it's kind of interesting that none of us went to an RSA first, and I'm going to leave my decision to the end, so it remains a little suspenseful. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I want to make a comment there, Joe. So I agree with you that that's why I started by saying this is about shared decision-making with the patient because I agree with you. I would want reversing this patient if a patient told me, I want you to do the one operation that is guaranteed to give you pain relief and good motion regardless. The problem is that I think we surgeons do not disclose properly what can go wrong with reverse. I think we don't do that very well. Like when I talk to my patients, I find myself that I don't tell them exactly the rate of, you know, I tell them, but, you know, dislocation, infection, fracture of the spine and the acromion, you know, those can happen. And when you have one of those, you know, it's a, it's really a complete change in the final outcome. So, I would discuss it with the patient and entertain it. Uh, but the other <laughs> options, if the patient is interested in something that is invasive but very appealing for a patient where the main complaint is pain, the motion is reasonable, and the strength seems to be okay. So I, I'm going back to two points. One, I agree. However, we have to be cautious in thinking that an arthroscopic procedure does not necessarily interfere with the ultimate secondary reverse operation. And, and you know, Jawa will point out data that a failed cuff is going to do more poorly with reverse than if he'd done it initially. And then Gus Mazaka, along with every Letterman's data, just have a small series of SCRs that failed 
And that when they looked at the reverse or the outcomes of the reverse, their subjective shoulder values were in the 50s compared to their reverses, which I said was going to be between 70 and 80. And it's multifactorial. It's a small series and you can't relate everything clearly, but you have to have some caution with no bridges burned. My last question, Rafi, to you. I still struggle. How does a balloon work? How does an SCR work? How do they give you similar results? And what about resurfacing on top of the tuberosity? How do these all play into a role for how are you solving for pain? Can you sort of get into the weeds on that? That's a, that's a great question, Paul. I, I think we, the question we have to ask ourselves is where is the pain coming from? When you have a massive cuff tear, is it synovitis? Is it capsulitis? Is it biceps tendonitis? You know, in my opinion, it's because when you have a massive cuff tear, as soon as a deltoid fires, it pulls the head up and it, the, your greater tuberosity starts to articulate with the undersurface of the chromium. So if you think about it, any of these procedures we do, at the end of the day, they're covering the tuberosity, whether it's a balloon, whether it's an SCR, even a cuff repair, you're preventing bone-to-bone contact and you're eliminating pain. So I do a, a procedure called biologic tuberoplasty where I take a dermal allograft and I just cover the tuberosity and those patients are happy and they're functional, the pain goes away. So it, it's my opinion that the pain's coming from bone-to-bone contact and whatever we can do to eliminate that contact we're going to eliminate the pain. Let me ask you a question then. Do you think that the SCR provides a fulcrum or is just an interposition? I think you have a paper that shows that when you have an SCR that fails on the glenoid side, patients still do well because you still have a tuberosity. When they fail on the tuberosity side, I think you presented that they don't do well and that's why your reasoning is so. Do you think that every SCR is a fulcrum? Because I actually don't think so. I think some are and some are just pre-interpositions. Well, I, I think biomechanically, Tiro Mahata has done a great job of, of showing us that it does keep the head centered on the glenoid. And that is my first line of treatment. I, I don't pass over the SCR to do my biologic tuberoplasty procedure. I do think it keeps the head centered on the glenoid and it, you have articular cartilage articulating with the other side of the joint. So it's only if it tears and most surgeons haven't been following with imaging data on their SCRs. And I think a fair number of them fail based on our studies. But I do, I do think to answer your question, I think there is a, it does have a fulcrum effect and keeps the head centered on the glenoid. Let me ask you, Rafi, then what's your algorithm as far as biologic tuberoplasty? When does that come in? Because I think you said SCR comes in first. Yeah, so th- I, I think if you've done SCRs, you know there's some patients, you go in and you, you want to put in your glenoid anchors and they pull out. They're, the bone quality is terrible. So now you're in the OR, you, you already have that dermal allograft. Approved. Are these in your 80-year-olds that you're doing the SCRs on or what, what age group? No, no, at 80, I won't, I won't do that. <laughs> no, I think 70 and above, even if the cartilage looks fine, I, I would go more towards RSA. So these are more of the 50, 60-year-olds. So if for some reason the bone quality is poor, I had a guy, he was 75, he had psoriatic arthritis on his elbow that the lesions were not controlled. He would have normally gotten an RSA, but he wanted something minimal done. So I did a biologic tuberoplasty on him. So he was too old for an SCR, but also not a candidate for RSA. So I'm handpicking, selecting on which which one I'm doing this procedure on. My last comment, Joe, before you show us what we did is I think it's important to look at their, the patient's range of motion actively to help determine, once again, if these soft tissue operations are relevant. So if someone's really, if they have less than 70 degrees of forward flexion, I'm very remiss 
in, or even 90, I'm remiss in wanting to do a non-arthroplasty solution, even if the cartilage is reasonable. I'd love you guys to sort of, you know, accept or refute that thesis. I agree with that. You know, even though there are people that say from the podium and SCR can reverse true pseudoparalysis, I do not think that is the case in most of the patients. You may have the occasional patient where there is pseudoparalysis that is reversed, but I agree with you, Paul. I think if they have true pseudoparalysis for me, that's a reverse. I agree with you on that as well. Yeah, I think I think most of these procedures, if you do them, you might be able to take a person from a four to a four plus on strength or four plus to five, but you're not going to take a pseudoparalytic patient that's in the three range and take them to a four plus. There's, there's no way in my mind. So let's see what the uh, audience said here as far as what they would have done for this uh, individual. So we can see that uh, 2% would not have operated. 3% debridement, 25% partial repair of what? I'm not sure, but they would have partially repaired something, maybe the nerve to the tuberosity. Um, <laughs> balloon, balloon had 5%, SCR had 10%, tendon transfer at 3%, RSA, look at that, 44%. So the people who don't identify themselves say RSA a lot more and when people are asked to make decisions uh, like we have to in front of other people and, and really disclose the complications like Joaquin was saying. So interesting. F minus for everyone on the panel here. <laughs> so definitely no, no, no consensus. Definitely a controversial. I do think some of these are, are interesting that these three procedures, SCR, tendon transfer, and balloon only represent about 18% of treatment. Rotator cuff repair is still at 25%. It's pretty interesting. I think for the, the relevance of the conversation moving forward, I'd like to show at this point what I did. And then that way, the rest of the questions can continue to flow, I think, with some context. So these are intraoperative uh, still images that uh, I have of the patient. Now, this is uh, from the posterior portal. You can see the subscap, rotator interval, a little bit of synovitis, biceps coming across. Cartilage for his age looks really good. Um, I, I, think I just want to stop you for one second because you, you glanced over something that I think is important. You said that the subscap is okay, right? And I think that, once again, as I alluded to, I think forward flexion is very important for the soft tissue options. I think an intact subscap or a subscap with the leading edge that you can repair is going to be essential for any of the other soft tissue options too. So I just want to point that out that you showed it, you said it, but it's a key piece of information to me. Absolutely. It's uh, it's a key for any of these procedures that are not, I think, RSA-based. Cartilage, again, just like Joaquin said, this is a patient, if you look at their ball and socket joint first, healthy cartilage. So why waste what you were given if you can keep it? Sagittal view from the lateral portal. You can see uh, some retained suture from before. You can see the tendon is retracted to the glenoid margin. There's a glenoid. So this one is one of those that you pull on and the uh, grabber of choice kind of fragments the tendon as you pull on it. So it's like a dry rubber band on a windowsill for a couple of months. So show you the procedure here. I did use the balloon spacer. And this is actually the first patient I ever implanted in the United States as part of the FDA trial. So this was pretty cool in my mind. The balloon's inserted at this point. You can place it typically from the lateral portal. I used uh, the posterior portal. 
to place the balloon here. And you can see initially you place it in and it's still curled up on itself. It's rolled up. And then as you inject saline outside the body through a portal, it inflates. You can see I actually left the biceps alone, which is heresy in, in some circles, but I did. And you can see now the head moving underneath the balloon. You can see how the head migrated inferiorly. So if you watch as the balloon inflated where the head was height-wise, so relative, you can see the head is, is really in line with the top of the glenoid here. And then as we inflated the balloon, you can see how it inferiorized the humeral head, which probably plays a role into some retentioning of the deltoid pec, remaining cuff muscles, improving their efficiency in center of rotation, and also provides a buffer between the tuberosity and the acromion, as we alluded to with these other procedures. Now, when he came in for his first post-op, this is his first post-op, you can see the stary strips on his right shoulder. Can you raise your arms up in front of me? In front of you, sorry. At two weeks. So this was at two weeks. Out to the side like you're flying. Like I, you know, was pretty impressed Back down. Uh, with his outcome Put your arms your side. Uh, so far. And I actually, this gentleman, I followed him now six and a half years, and I'll give some further details as far as his recovery. And turn your back to me, please. And then what I want you to do is, sort of showed you this before, reach behind your back, up your back. So this is this is what we did. And yeah, I'd like to get some of your comments, and then we can go back to the questions. But thoughts, comments? So, Joe, how, how let's get into some of the technical weeds. How do you decide what size you're going to do? I've heard about intraoperative. I've heard about gra- or rather balloon dislodgement. Are those real things? And tell me technically, because now this is FDA approved. Surgeons can do this. For the first year or two that we heard about it, we really, we couldn't do it. But exactly how, and in the FDA trial, I know you, you didn't do concomitant procedures, but what are you, what's Joe Boone going to do in 2022? Right. So approved in July, for me, I still follow the same indications I did for the trial. They have to have an intact force couple, no arthritis, really minimal involvement to none of the, of the subscap. They have to be able to elevate to at least 90. And it's on label for patients over 65 in the United States as far as the FDA approval. So if the patient has pain, ability to elevate, mild weakness, x-rays, again, Hamada 1 or 2 with a Goutalier grade 3 or 4 in the supra and infra, that's a patient I'm having a conversation about this. You can do concomitant procedures. And in the study, actually, there were actually a couple exceptions. You could do a biceps tenotomy or tenodesis. You could do a DCR. You can do a SAD. However, you're not allowed to do any type of rotator cuff repair. Currently, I would say U.S. surgeons using this procedure are considering partial repair with the balloon. I'm still not sure where I am on that because I'm still trying to decipher what the benefit is of partial repair with the balloon, because then you may lose some of the decreased pain levels acutely post-op, plus the accelerated rehab that you may be able to perform with a balloon interposition versus a partial repair with a balloon. So dislodgement, technical features. Right. So dislodgement, I think that it is a, so size, the guy who invented this, Asa Tikal, when I first met him, he used to tell me, if you're in between sizes, always go bigger. There is a sizing technique described by a striker as far as how to, how to size it. But for me, for males, I'm generally, if they're larger males, kind of like reverses, 
If they're larger males, they're getting a large balloon. If they're smaller individuals, they're getting a medium. If they're really petite, they're getting a small. And then as far as dislodgement, depending on, again, you don't want to violate the pseudo capsule that's formed around the cuff tear, right? So when you go into a cuff tear that's chronic, there's kind of this capsular walling off of the medial wall of the glenoid up to the clavicle, anteriorly leave the CA ligament alone, posteriorly leave that uh, deltoid fascia alone. And so you want to place the balloon in this space. Now we know the balloon is dynamic as you have duct, et cetera, and you decrease the space, it will go back and forth sometimes between the subacromial space and the lateral deltoid gutter from the acromion. We've seen that on videos where the balloon is injected with dye. So it's a dynamic spacer, but in general, when it's supposed to be in that general area, while it's still present, it's kind of buffering that area between the, the head and the acromion. Now, the balloon does disappear and it's interesting, right? So we think that biologic tuberoplasty may be helping because it provides something between the tuberosity and the acromion. Well, we're not really sure, and I have taken a second look now on one patient, what develops between the tuberosity and the acromion in these patients, but they do maintain the benefit we've seen for at least two years, because the study was for two years, and it's going to be published in JBJS in 2022, but I have patients, again, that are now five, six years out that are still seeing benefit. This is not, in my opinion, a permanent solution. So I hope that answers the questions that you raised, Paul. Yeah. I mean, look, it's very insightful. It's as much as we know. Your guy at five, five years out, you're a um, retired carpenter. Yeah. So this is interesting. So this gentleman was doing great until about five and a half years. Around six years, he comes in. He says, I'm having some increased pain again. I have this case I can show some other time. I have his x-rays and his MRI. There's no progression of his arthritis. This gentleman, there's no progression of his MRI findings as far as cartilage and cuff muscle atrophy. He opted to have the balloon again. And I actually reinserted the balloon in him about two months ago now, and he's rehabbing. He's not rehabbing as quickly as he did the first time. It's interesting. But when I went in arthroscopically, there was no evidence of anything ever having been in there. <laughs> Cartilage looked pristine. There was no pseudo film or capsule or anything that was between the tuberosity chromium. So it's very interesting to me because if I had not known, I would have thought this gentleman had chronic cuff tear, but nothing else going on five, six years ago. Roth, what would you do? What would you have done now that you've seen his intraoperative images? I think this is fascinating. I could see why he, he had that range of motion in the office within a week or two after surgery. I just don't understand how he could still be working even five years out. And I know, Joe, you and I have talked about this and, and you told me you feel like it rebalances the force couples. I just don't understand it because I know that as soon as he fires his deltoid, he's gonna, his head's going to go up and rub against the chromium. So I'm still baffled at the long-term outcomes of this procedure. I just don't know how it works long-term. Just to clarify, Rafi, I don't think we can talk about long-term outcomes. The best paper out there is two years, you know, and I think what yeah. Joe is very important. This is probably not a long-term solution. It's a Band-Aid that may last for a number of years, is someone that wants a very quick recovery with minimal invasive surgery. If you want a permanent solution, probably a reverse is the way to go. So for this patient, we have done a balloon or a reverse, depending on the conversation. Yeah, I would have done a, a CR on him. And, and Joe, just to, can I ask you a question? 
did you get post-op x-rays? Because on his pre-op, he was, I would say, probably a Hamada too. I mean, I don't have a ruler to measure it, but he definitely had some superior migration of the head. Post-op, I'm assuming his head, you pressed it down like we saw in arthroscopically. And then oh, year after year, did the head go up or how soon did you start seeing that superior migration of the head? So, so we know at two years, a chromohumeral interval narrows back down a bit, not back to baseline though. It's interesting. We have MRIs of these patients at six weeks and one year as part of the FDA trial. And it's interesting to see what happens to the balloon at six weeks. And then it's interesting to see that it's pretty much gone at one year. And we're currently writing a paper up on just imaging of the balloon because we're going to have a lot of patients for whatever reason who are going to get images and radiologists and orthopedists are going to be kind of curious of what a balloon looks like at mm-hmm. three months. Where is it? What's it doing? Right. And so it's, it's, it's very interesting. This gentleman actually has x-rays at, like I was saying, he had x-rays again at around six years. And again, very similar to his preoperative x-rays the first time around. But yeah, you do see some narrowing. And there's a paper on that from Europe that even though they do narrow, they seem to maintain their constant score. Cool. Thank you. Great, Kate. I still don't know the answer. We are going to continue with our discussion here. So I think this gets into more controversy as far as if we choose rotator cuff repair, and we know that 25% of the audience did choose that, what are you using to augment? So let's let's change the scenario a little bit. Let's say it's more of a Goutelier 2 type patient, right? So we're not kind of scratching our head as to why these people even thought rotator cuff repair, right? So what are we doing when we are doing a rotator cuff repair that's at this time challenging in our thoughts as far as the healing, right? Because Joaquin talked about repairable, healable, functional, right? We got to thump through all those steps. How are we going to get it to be healable and maybe even functional? Thoughts, Paul? So I, I'm going to I'll choose healable as my, as my idea. Functional, functional, we'll see. For a revision rotator cuff repair, I'm going to want to see that there's adequate tissue. And I'm going to want to see that the tissue is has adequate sort of excursion out to the lateral tuberosity. If it doesn't, I'll do a single row. If it does and it's thin, I'm going to add a dermal augment probably routinely in revision rotator cuff surgery. And I probably will also add bone marrow aspirate that I'll sort of do a primary repair, single or double row as the tissue allows. I'll put a dermal graft on top of that to unload my graft. And at the end, I'll take a spinal needle and I'll sort of put it between and I'll fill my sandwich with a little bit of jelly, a little bit of bone marrow aspirate because um, I am religious and I I think the voodoo helps. Rafi, you're a big biologics guy. What are you going to do? Well, I I think if you're doing a revision rotator cuff repair, uh, you have to augment because the patient's already proven to you that he's not he's not a good candidate for healing. Either the tissue quality was poor or his healing ability was poor. So I would routinely add dermal allograft because biomechanically it increases the ultimate load to failure in primary repairs, not revisions, but it, in primaries, it's been shown to reduce the retail rate. So I would definitely do dermal to increase my strength of the repair and for biologic to improve the healing. I think bone marrow aspirate is probably the one that has the most science behind it. Hernigu study and then Brian Coles and a Nick Verma study out of Rush also kind of duplicated that study. It significantly reduced the retail rate. So those would be my combination go-to biologics in a revision. Raf, are you happy with the bone marrow aspirate from the humerus or do you think you go to the crest? 
Uh, I get it from the humerus. I actually don't get it from the humeral head. I aim the trocar down to the center of the canal. And that's where I get my bone marrow aspirate from. I think that's where the bone marrow is. That's where the cells are instead of the, the actual head. So I aim to go into the canal and harvest from there. Joaquin, I must say that my rate of revision carrier has decreased substantially. Like I almost always am going out to a salvage procedure. I don't find myself in a patient that has a true failure where a calf repair was well done and it failed. I don't think that fixing it again, even with any type of biologics, is going to increase substantially the chances. But if I were going to do something in this you know, list, I would do a dermal allograft as well. I've never tried the stem cells of my resident. That I find interesting. It comes to mind, but I've never done guys, you know, but just kidding. Those good transmit some disease, Joaquin. <laughs> They're younger, you know, they have amazing, you know, stem cells. <laughs> but uh, I think for me, it would be dermal allograft. But again, I don't do many revisions anymore. I just go quickly to a salvage, either the balloon, tendon transfer, SCR, or reverse. So just to comment on the bursal stem cells, this is, uh, I think, deriving from Gus Mazaka's work where he harvested the bursa and, and him and his fellows sort of looked at where you were going to get the most MSCs, signaling cells, whatever you want to call them. And surprisingly, disturbingly, there was a lot of pluripotent cellular material in the bursa. So they harvest it in a little net and then they sort of inject it back in as a relatively inexpensive clot, if it were. It's interesting. Seven years ago, I was using a lot of PRP. Currently, I don't really use it much. And I must say, level five evidence, I wasn't sure it was making a difference in my hands. Sidebar, Bomar aspirates, I've really had a hard time getting much volume. And so one of the studies I've been interested in is looking at the marrow elements that are preserved in a stemless versus a stemmed arthroplasty, right? So you may say, where are you going with this? So if you maintain the mesochymal stem cells and the marrow in the canal, you would say maybe there's a benefit rather than stuffing that canal with a 120 millimeter stem. And so therefore maybe the cuff is, is stays healthier and you have less cuff attrition and maybe subscap failure. Long story short, we got a grant to do that. And we were doing aspirates of the canal. And I every time I had a very hard time getting much from my aspirates and spin downs as far as cellular analysis. So I've never done it for a cuff, but we do know that cuffs typically, as far as the data, patients who have chronic cuff tear or cuff tear arthropathy don't really have great bone marrow mesenchymal stem cells as far as, I'm not sure. So I guess, are you doing it in older patients or generally young patients, Rafi? Because I I just don't know if I see the value of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not typically doing cuff repairs in 75 or, you know, 78, 79 year olds. So these are going to be 60, late 50s, all the way up to late 60s. The trick is not to touch the tuberosity. And wherever you're going to put your anteromedial anchor, right behind the biceps, right off the articular margin, come in with right off the uh, edge of the acromion and put your trocar right where you would put your anchor, your first anchor, and then insert it into the canal. I get 60 cc's so quickly, so easily from there. I've had no problem with harvesting. Now, when I first did it and I would go into the head, that's where I had trouble pulling, you know, getting the, the marrow and the blood out but not from the canal. Turning to state on those nuances, um, we looked at this in a study. We're attempting to you figure out. You can't, uh, you have to be careful if you do repair the subscap or do anything anterior on the biceps. 
I think you break the seal. So that could be a problem for when you're doing aspirate. But the quality, the quality of the aspirate from the humerus is, has demonstrably been lower volume of, of signaling cells compared to the hip. I would challenge you that that's from the actual proximal humeral head. That's where they've gotten the cells from. So Adam Ants and I are doing a study right now comparing the head versus marrow from the canal to see if there's a difference in, in the stem cell uh, activity or, or volume. This is great discussion, guys. I'm, I'm learning a ton. So let's see what the audience said here. 34%, I would not repair the rotator cuff. And then 27% said I would not augment. Now, the ones that would augment, 14% were going with the dermal allograft, which I think the majority on this panel said. Bomer aspirate, 1%, PRP at 7%. And the residents came in at 1%. Seven residents offered, Joaquin, just for you. <laughs> They're probably all from your program. So, <laughs> interesting, right? Interesting diversity of, of thought. And, and it shows you how controversial this, this topic is, right? I mean, coin flips and controversy, it's, it's a perfect topic because everyone's split all over the place. And I don't think you could fault anyone for their opinions because a lot of it is level five information. So if you chose, if you choose an SCR, what graft would you choose? So I think we should start with Paul here. What are you using? So it depends. I will, I will either use a thick dermal allograft, at least three millimeters, or I'll use the long head of the biceps and I'll leave the long head of the biceps intact on the superglenoid tubercle and then tina it de- or attach it to the tuberosity outside of the groove. It really depends on how much real estate is available. If it's a big defect, then the biceps isn't going to cover it. You could sort of reconfigure it into a V configuration, which is tested out well in the lab. The box configuration of the long head of the biceps doesn't test out that well. The head can buttonhole through the box. So I think both are there. The biceps is easier. The biceps is faster. Quite candidly, I did one today, and I think it's a very nice operation. Rafi? Uh, I, I would use dermal allograft. Uh, that's what I've been using. I mean, Tiro has shown us the TFL. That's what he uses. Uh, no one in the States has really gone that way. And interestingly, he folds that thing seven or eight times. So it's a, it becomes a very thick graft, and it holds suture really well. I've only done it with originally with three millimeter allografts. I never did it with the one or two millimeter allograft for the uh, dermal allograft. But what I found is if I fold it over and I doubled the thickness to six millimeters, that's when I noticed my retail rates significantly dropped. That's anecdotal evidence. I haven't done the statistics on it, but I've done about 22 or 23 patients that I've doubled the graft and made it into six millimeters. And just by collecting the data and looking at the numbers, I can tell you it's reduced the number of retailers significantly. But again, I'll, I'll be publishing that as soon as I can. The problem I have with the biceps, it, it will anchor it, Paul, but I, I think it doesn't cover the entire tuberosity, right? How, how are you, what do you do with the rest of the tuberosity once you've anchored the biceps? So what I do is I see where the infra is going to come up and repair too, right? So I'll pull on the infra and then where, where, where the infra stops or where I can stop advancing the infra, I'm going to seal the biceps right there. That's where the biceps gets attached. So that's how I'm closing down that defect. And you might say to me, what if the biceps is pathologic? It doesn't matter. A pathologic biceps, if, if I gave you a pathologic biceps and asked you to pull it apart, or I gave you a dermal graft and asked you to pull it apart, I suspect a, a thickened, wide biceps would hold up every day. So, Paul, technically speaking, you leave the insertion site on the superglenoid tubercle in, in place. You bring the tendon over, tenodes it wherever you want it on the tuberosity, and then 
you tenotomize or tinnitus the remaining portion that's part of the long head? So yes, you can actually do it either way. Um, and I've done it both ways. In the first series from Larry Field that looked at 30 patients with this, Larry left them all intact. And I, and I was very worried that as the biceps takes a sort of angle in and out of the groove, that could cause pain. In the first 10 I did, I left it intact and I had one patient with significant bicipital pain. So now I've moved over to either tenotomy, depending upon their demand, or just do a, a super pectoral tenodesis and then release it and have biceps sitting above. Then importantly, I'm going to sew the infra into the reattached biceps across the, the glenohumeral joint. Gotcha. Joaquin, what are your thoughts on types of uh, grafts you use? To be honest, over the last couple of years, I haven't done a single SCR. Like for me, tendon transfer reverse and the balloon have taken over that market. When I used to do them, I used dermal allograft, the three millimeter one. But I don't do so, them anymore. So, so when you do a tendon transfer, what are you augmenting with? An Achilles allograft. Okay. Okay. So I got two questions. I'm sorry. One, Joaquin, why did you quit SCR? So I quit SCR because in the patients that would be a candidate for me for an SCR, I find the balloon more attractive. I think he's playing this, the same role. And of course, we don't have the same follow-up. And three other reasons. In our institution, it's very expensive. So we published a paper on the comparative cost. And it's $4,000 more expensive than reverse or tendon transfer. And like you pointed out, I think when you do a reverse after a failed SCR, it's not the same. So I think you do burn a bridge. I don't find the ideal candidate that I cannot get by with a balloon for a couple of years. So that's what I have chosen to do. Probably I also don't see the same patients you guys see. My patients that come to me with a calf that are older than probably the ones that you see, Paul, or you, Rafi, don't have a sports practice. So that probably makes an impact. I don't see very often the 40-year-old patient that has just the supra torn. So the other question is, my observation in trapezius transfer is that their pain relief comes very quickly. They feel good quickly. And I wonder that if, if is part of their relief covering the tuberosity with this thick Achilles, which could be a space in of itself. Now, the difference is I'm sure that I've seen improvement in the external rotation. I can watch the trapezius fire and feel it fire. So I, I know I'm adding at least one to one and a half grades of strength. But their immediate pain relief, I was so surprised in my first few that it, that it wasn't more of a, a catharsis for the patient. I agree with you. And I think that's why I like Rafi's comment so much about his tuberoplastic with tissue. In the end, you're also covering tuberosity with a graft. So you're probably getting that benefit. And then on top of that, you can actually restore loss external rotation. But I only do it when I have a patient that doesn't go to neutral. A patient that the one that Joe showed that the patient can get to 20 or 50, you know, then I wouldn't do a tendon transfer. Great comments. Great controversy. I love it. From you, Joe. So what's your indication for SCR today? Unfortunately, uh, I'm in your camp, uh, Joaquin, or fortunately. I will, if they're appropriate, I will do a balloon. If they're otherwise indicated, I'll do an RSA. Wow, you have to be able, they have to, they can't spell SCR, so they really, they can't put it on their <laughs> You know, it, it brings up a good point. I think a lot of it has to do with our training, with, with what fellowship we did and our own experience. So, you know, Paul and I are sports trained. We're not arthroplasty trained. So I think in our practice, we tend to veer more towards SCR and more towards soft tissue procedures. I think if you've done a shoulder and elbow fellowship and you, you're doing a couple hundred RSAs a year, you're going to lean more towards it towards that over the SCR. I don't know. That's that's just the, the feel that I get. Uh, also, but I think that plays a role. And also the patient population that you guys get and I get is probably very different. You know, so 
when you are a sports medicine doctor, you tend to draw a crowd, a crowd that is slightly younger. So I can see how in your practice, Rafi, yes, you are. Well, I think we have different patient populations coming to us. Actually, Joaquin, I'm an octogenarian expert in sports medicine. So every <laughs> octogenarian in the Philadelphia area sees me for their sports medicine injuries so they can get back to their various uh, backgammon games. <laughs> so you can see what our audience picked here. 50% chose against SCR. 20% said they would use dermal allograft. Interesting, 10% said tensor fasciolata. Maybe it's resident tensor fasciolata. Long head of biceps is, is creeping in there. Achilles is, is seems to be forgotten. And then, so interesting, interesting, uh, interesting group. So let's see here. If you chose RSA, would you repair the subscap? And what would be your primary repair method? So let's expand our horizon here. This patient did not want the possible one and done. He wanted the, the more sure one and done with the increased risk benefit ratio or the risk ratio, right? So to this question, I'll start with Joaquin. Would you do an RSA with a subscap repair? Yes. So I do try to repair the subscapularis in every reverse orthoplasty. And I do a tenotomy as my primary method of approach. And as such, my repair is a tenotomy repair. If a patient has very limited passive external rotation, I will do a PL instead. And then we'll do a through bone repair of my PL. Paul? Yeah, I will routinely repair my subscap if it can come out with an appropriate excursion. I'll use three transosseous tunnels and uh, a Pascal Buello, three new niece loops to repair it down. Um, and, and I think it probably does matter. I know the data is not clear. Certainly the, the dislocation data may not actually be relevant to the subscapularis, but I do think there's going to be some functional things like pulling your pants up that, uh, and Joe, I know you don't do that a lot, but... <laughs> <laughs> that 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 can have to be relevant in repairing the subscap. Sweatpants all the way, Paul. You never know, you don't have to worry about. It. So interestingly, I've not repaired the subscap. So in my patients that have a reparable subscap, I do not repair their subscap. Is that implant oh. specific, Joe? No, I I actually used to use a Gramont, never did, and now I use a lateralized glenosphere, and I don't. So. I don't know. I mean, every time I do do one because we're involved in a study or something, I, I go to myself, oh, this is a waste of, you know, 10 to 12 minutes. It's, it's probably going to tear or do nothing. Or I do their range of motion first and then I do it again after I repair it. And I go, well, now they're tight. I'm not sure I really like this. Now, again, I'm in a, a slight minority. I don't think it's a super majority that fits the subscap, but I think I'm in a slight minority. But if I was to repair it, I usually do uh, use bone tunnels as I, I generally use a, a peel. Rough. Yeah, I, I repair it when I can. I do a peel, so I use bone tunnels to repair it. So let's see what the audience chose here. 14% would not do it. 15% would not repair it. 26%, well, let's just say about 70% would repair it, right? Because 29% were outside of that. So, so you are in the majority, Joaquin and, and Paul. So, I mean, you know, again, I... I I struggle with this, and I don't know if it's implant-specific, but good points by Paul. We'll see. I, I don't know if I've necessarily seen increased dislocation in my, in my, in my so, patients. Versus- so, so let me just go to Joaquin. You know, we, you, you're a repairer like me. Do you notice a difference, or can you tell the difference in, in, in those patients in whom you didn't repair it? I haven't uh, looked at them carefully enough to really uh, know a difference, Paul. And I think what John mentioned is true, you know, 
we repair it, we don't know how often it heals. That's the whole other question that we have to answer. But my rationale is that if you have another uh, anterior soft tissue wall, possibly it decreases dislocation. There are studies from France, mostly by Philippe Collin and others that show better internal rotation with a Gramonte style prosthesis. And I like the idea of having a more sealed envelope for infection reasons. So I have a lot of theoretical reasons. I cannot give you any data that shows that it really makes a difference. Yeah, I'm surprised would, as, as we've moved from, you know, not truly Joe's truly lateralized system to even, even you know, three to five millimeters of glenoid-based lateralization and then onlay tray, which gives you a little more humeral lateralization. We're further lateralizing the humerus across all systems. I don't find the ability to repair the subscapular is truly compromised by these newer systems, but I, I don't know where it's going to shake out. All great points. So this gets into one of the more controversial topics with the introduction of, of the balloon. Money, right? I mean, it all comes down to cost and healthcare. Greatest portion of our GDP, healthcare. And so it's asking us where we perform this. And it's interesting as this has been rolled out, this has been a common question that people have approached me and others about as far as what's the cost, where has it been approved, where are you using it? Interestingly, in my experience, the ASCs have been slow to approve it. Hospitals are slow still, but they're a little faster, I think, than ASCs. And I, I'm not totally sure why, but probably some of that has to do with margins and different ownership structures affecting reimbursement by insurance. And also, at least at the hospital I work at, they actually have taken a very scientific approach. They've asked us to do not only just the line item cost analysis, but differential costing looking at how much time you spend in the OR, how many anchors you would have used for a different type of procedure, et cetera. And so this is a very hot topic. Paul, what do you think? So, you know, currently we can't do them in our surgery center. There's, we don't have a, a HICFA code, or, so it can only be done in our, in our hospital setting. Ultimately, look, the, the market has to sort of prove itself. And when the procedure is more mainstream and when there are codes to allow this procedure, then we'll have to be able to offer it to patients everywhere. How's Kaiser treating this, Rafi, so far? Um, we have a shoulder subspecialty team that's trying to evaluate it and see if they can get it in for limited use just to, just to test it out. But as of right now, we, we cannot use it. It's not on contract, but they're working on it. And Joaquin and Mayo, what are they doing? So we don't have an ambulatory surgery center. We only operate in hospitals, but we do the procedures as outpatients. And the challenge we're facing is that if, like Paul mentioned, if you do the operation in Medicare patients, and that's the only thing you do, you cannot charge. So when I use the balloon in patients that are in Medicare, I have to do other procedures, like you mentioned, bisestenodesis, disarticulopathy, to get at least some type of reimbursement. On the contrary, in patients under 65, even though it is not an FDA-approved indication, I've been successful getting their insurance companies to approve it on an individual basis. So approaching them and asking them, I think this is the best option for your patient. Will you approve it or not? And they typically have done it. So I did a patient today that is under 65 and it was approved before we went to the operating room. So, And the logistics of that, guys, is called an SCA, a single case agreement. And, and insurers will respond to that. And that's what we're working on in our ASC, single case agreements for certain cases. That's what I do, Paul. Excellent. So let's see what the audience said here. 63% would not choose it. Sort of split between independent ASC, 
hospital ASC, hospital. So I think this is going to take some more time to look at the costing. And I know they're going to be looking to have a separate code approved by CMS potentially in the future. And so rehab, I know that uh, Joaquin and I have, have done some of the balloon. Paul, have you have you done any balloons? Not yet. Right. So it, this is interesting. Um, as far as the rehab goes, in the study, these patients were treated the same way as partial repairs. So they all were in a sling for about four to six weeks and then started in typical progression of cognitive exercises. Since the approval, my pathway has generally been, I give it about two weeks. And I think the reason that makes sense to me is some of that expansion tension pain that they have initially subsides a bit. The balloon starts to find its kind of resting area, so to speak, I think. I don't know. I don't, this is again, all kind of gestalt. And then I want to start having them use the arm because again, if, if the thought process is not only is it a buffer between the tuberosity chromium, but also retensioning a rotator cuff from the uncompensated to the compensated state, I want them to get moving with their active range of motion exercises. So I will typically, I saw a patient today, she was eight days out. Uh, next week, she's going to start passive and active range of motion exercises. And then four weeks after that, I'll start strengthening. But I do know there's a, a potential study that, that's going to look at the uh, rehab randomization of these patients. So that should be interesting. Joaquin? Yeah, I do the same as you. I've been letting them start their physical therapy at week two. And I don't have your experience. I've only done... I think six cases total, but so far patients seem to be doing quite well. And I haven't seen any issues with their range of motion. So just like you. So I believe that um, this was the last controversial question topic we were going to look at. I think we've covered a, a wide breadth of information here. I think it's a great sampling of, first of all, the collegiality, the laid back approach, the knowledge, the wisdom coming from these gray hairs and tan bodies like uh, Rafi and Joaquin. Uh, Paul, you and I kind of look a little Northeast pale, but we can all go to South Beach, Miami for shoulder 360, get some sun, some surf, some education, and some libations. So I'm really looking forward to the course. I'm really looking forward to seeing you for in person and would uh, welcome any parting remarks from our esteemed panel. Well, Joe, I, I think you said it all. I, I learned more from sitting on a panel like this and question more, and I don't know that I know the right answer. So I think that, that this is fantastic, and I think the fellowship between OrthoBullets and 360, and, and Joaquin, you are 360, whether you know it or not, bro. I'm excited. I'm excited to see you all there. Yeah, I want to thank Joaquin especially for taking time to do this with us, help us promote our, our Shoulder 360 course. Shoulder360.org is the website, so I hope you can all join us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me guys tonight. I cannot wait for the course. I've seen the agenda already as a speaker and it's incredibly appealing to me, not only the location. And of course, you know, I, I love Miami being from Spain originally, but <laughs> having people that can go from Europe, from South America, and the way that the three of you interact has been just wonderful. So thank you for having me and I hope to see everyone in Miami this year. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Peace. That's all for this episode of Coin Flips and Controversies. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed producing it. 
Again, you can find links in our show notes to review the case discussed in this episode on OrthoBullets, watch the full video version of this episode, and register for the Shoulder 360 course at the Lowe's Miami Beach Hotel this April 28th through 30th, 2022. A big thank you once again to our webinar panel for this episode, Drs. Joseph Abood, Rafi Mirzayan, Paul Sethi, and Joaquin Sanchez-Sotelo for sharing their insights and expertise. This has been a special episode of the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you love this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or just tag us on social media to let us know what you thought of this episode and help us spread the word about this podcast. If you're not already, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.